This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Groundhogs. Do you wish there were an easy way to eliminate the effects of climate change on extreme winter weather? Try Groundhogs today. Welcome to episode 34 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about mangroves, the perfect place for a Florida man to do this. Super laid back and fun to hang out at. Spencer Dean loves the usual vibe at the getaway bar and restaurant, but Saturday was different. Helicopters flew overhead as canines searched the area during a multi-agency manhunt with the Florida Highway Patrol, Coast Guard, Sheriff's Office, and Florida Fish and Wildlife. According to FHP, 38-year-old Rashad Cutler parked at the restaurant, fled to the docks of Coastal Marine, and jumped in the water. The sergeant says they tried to lure him in with ladders and rafts, but he swam to a nearby island and hid in the mangroves. A few things. One, the fact that this news report needed eyewitness testimony from someone completely uninvolved with the manhunt to clarify that the getaway restaurant is normally fun and laid back and not normally dudes diving off the docks and hiding should tell you everything you need to know about Florida. Two, if the Florida man actually had any intention of hiding, he never should have hid at a place literally called the getaway. And three, why did that sergeant think he would lure the guy in with ladders and rafts? If you want to lure in a Florida man, all you have to do is hold up a G.I. Joe, a bag of sour Skittles, or a bunch of already lit fireworks five seconds away from going off. But believe it or not, mangrove forests serve a lot more purposes than letting Floridians hide from the authorities. Mangroves are trees and shrubs that grow in the salty waters of tropical coasts, providing a home for an extremely diverse range of species and a massive carbon sink. And sadly, mangroves are facing a lot of challenges. This mangrove on Pakistan's longest river is home to a rich ecosystem, but it's under threat. Indonesia has more mangroves than anywhere else in the world, and scientists say preserving them is one of the cheapest and most efficient ways of reducing emissions. But across the country, many mangroves have been cut down to make way for farms and tourist resorts. Mangrove forests in Kenya cover about 61,271 hectares, representing approximately 3% of the natural forest cover. But the high dependency on the mangroves by the locals for construction, fuel energy, and as breathing hideouts, coupled with extremely high demand for land in the city, may soon see these numbers drastically reduce. It's true. Mangrove forests are under threat. They're even more threatened than Army Hammer's career. 50% of the world's mangroves have already been lost, and at current rates, mangroves may all but functionally disappear by the year 2100. So today, we'll break down why mangroves are so important, what challenges they face, and what we can do to protect them moving forward. But first, a little about mangroves. In nature, everything has a role to play. So what's so special about you, and where are the mangoes? <laughs> Mangroves have nothing to do with mangoes, dear friend. But we can do something no other plant species can. What's that? Only we mangroves grow in salt water. Oh, but how? Some of us have two sets of roots. The stilt roots above water and the pop-up aerial roots, which come from below the surface of the water to breathe. 
the excess salts are absorbed and thrown out from the roots and leaves. Okay, I know kids are bumbling idiots, but do you really think kids are so dumb that they assume mangroves have mangoes just because the words sound alike? By that logic, you'd always feel pain in Spain, shrews would wear shoes, and burgers would be covered in boogers, and unless you're referring to the burgers at White Castle, none of those things are actually true. Mangroves once covered three-quarters of the world's tropical coastlines, and in addition to being the only tree that grows in salt water, mangroves are special for a host of other reasons. Mangroves act as a natural buffer against storm surges caused by sea level rise. Mangroves protect coral reefs from sedimentation. The tangle of mangrove roots provide an important habitat for many important species and a nursing environment for juveniles of thousands of fish, such as minnows and sharks. And if we look to climate change, mangroves actually do a ton to keep it in check. All trees need carbon dioxide to grow. As they absorb it from the atmosphere, carbon becomes locked within the tree's leaves, branches, and roots. Parts of the tree eventually fall off into the soil where they decompose, releasing some of their CO2 back into the atmosphere. But mangroves are different. Their tangled network of roots traps this carbon-rich plant material in their waterlogged soil, sealing it off from the atmosphere. This vault of carbon can remain secure for millennia as long as the mangrove forests remain intact. Exactly! Mangroves hoard carbon even more than Nicolas Cage hoards dinosaur skulls. And since carbon dioxide is the leading greenhouse gas contributing to climate change, the fact that mangroves can suck it out of the atmosphere and trap it better than most other ecosystems is a really big deal. Even though mangroves only make up 3% of the Earth's forest cover, cutting them all down would lead to a 10% increase in global atmospheric carbon. Because of this, mangroves might be one of the most important protections we have against climate change, except of course for the new McPlant burger at McDonald's. Way to go, McDonald's! I know none of your burgers actually ever had real beef in them to begin with, but I'm so glad veganism has advanced to a place where you can now freely admit that. But unfortunately, while mangroves have been fighting against climate change, climate change has been fighting back. As the polar ice caps melt, it's causing global sea levels to rise. Many tropical mangroves could drown if they can't adapt to rising sea levels by the end of the century. Like me during the last five minutes of my high school swim test, mangroves are on the verge of drowning. According to a study last year in Science Magazine, mangroves cannot survive in seas rising faster than 7 millimeters per year. As small as that might sound, it's still enough wiggle room to withstand today's annual rate of about 3 millimeters per year. But under a scenario of high greenhouse gas emissions, sea level rise will accelerate to about 6 or 7 millimeters per year within the next 30 years. And I know that may seem like a ways away, but it really isn't. 30 years ago, Silence of the Lambs had just come out, Miss Saigon was snubbed at the Tonys, and Dana Carvey was nearing the end of his run on SNL. And it's not just sea level rise. The increase in tropical storms damages mangrove health. The more extreme precipitation and flooding can affect oxygen concentrations in soil and hinder photosynthesis. And the larger hurricane winds can wreak havoc by uprooting trees, defoliating entire areas, and blocking drainage to the ocean. All of this leads to a vicious cycle. 
Fewer mangroves means less CO2 being trapped, which means worse climate change. And worse climate change means sea level rise and storms, which means fewer mangroves. I don't know why we say a problem snowballs when we should really be saying that a problem mangroves. Another threat to mangroves is deforestation. Kilifi County is one of those in Kenya that has a high number of uneducated, unemployed youth, and subsequently a big percentage of the population is poor. Those who stay near water bodies, such as the Mida Creek, have now turned to destroying the mangroves, which are a vital coastal ecosystem and are using the trees to make charcoal and firewood and building materials. As great as mangroves are for fending off climate threats for the communities they're in, they're also great for firewood, construction wood, pulp, charcoal, and animal fodder, which are often massive needs for impoverished regions. Now, it's not a bad thing in the slightest that people in these communities are finding a natural resource they can use to improve their livelihoods. I mean, if I had mango trees in my backyard, I'd be picking them every single day until I ran out and had to ask, Where are the mangoes? But this dilemma for impoverished communities on tropical coasts is a bit more complicated. The ecosystem services that mangroves provide are actually really important to the livelihoods of those living nearby. They protect the communities from floods and storms, they bring in tourism revenue, and they're the home of many fish, which are an essential food source. As such, it's often in uneducated areas where locals cut down mangroves, since there are usually other trees a little further inland where people can harvest wood. What about on the commercial level? Mangroves actually have a key threat here too, and unfortunately, it just happens to be from one of the best foods in the world. Unfortunately, mangroves are in the perfect terrain to have very large shrimp farms. And this has destroyed a lot of the mangrove forests, particularly in Ecuador and also all over the world. And cutting down mangroves to make way for shrimp farms is really shellfish. Among the many species that call mangroves home are shrimp. And this has led farmers to turn these ecosystems into shrimp ponds. Farmers dig channels to supply the ponds with freshwater and saltwater, which alters the natural flow of water, contaminates freshwater with seawater, prevents mangrove seeds from being dispersed, and even kills off trees by cutting off freshwater supply. The process of catching shrimp can lead to nets damaging the ocean floor, leaving habitats damaged, and according to a 2018 study in Ecology and Evolution, 58 to 82% of the ecosystem carbon stocks in mangroves are lost due to the conversion to shrimp farms. Shrimp farms are also hotbeds for disease. By cramming an absurd number of shrimp into these spaces, it's impossible for shrimp to stay six feet apart, wear masks, and take hourly baths in Purell. The fact that these farms typically consist of just one species of shrimp increases their susceptibility even further. And an average intensive shrimp farm only survives two to five years before pollution and disease force it to shut down, which is horrible because the commercial farmers leave and the locals are left with a devastated landscape that can no longer support fishing, farming, or wood gathering, leading many to have to move away. In fact, shrimp farms are even worse for spreading disease than Sky Zone. Sky Zone. Who thought it would be a good idea to force children to share socks? 
I can understand bowling where you need special shoes to have traction and can wear your own socks underneath as a buffer, but why do you need special communal socks to jump on a trampoline? I love trampoline dodgeball more than I love life itself, but unless you're willing to power wash those socks for five days straight while I watch, I think I gotta steer clear. And the impacts extend beyond that particular area, too. When a seagull swoops down and eats a diseased shrimp and then poops a few miles away, they then contaminate a whole other area. And shrimp farmers use tons of chemicals and antibiotics to try to keep the shrimp pathogen free, which both leads to chemical and organic waste contaminating surrounding waters. And while this might be a temporary solution, it ultimately can't hold out for very long and instead leads to this. Just before the shrimp are caught, a preservative containing sulfur is poured into the water. 30 to 50% of the water in the grow out ponds is exchanged every day. Contaminated water is channeled into rivers and fresh water is brought in. Everything here is contaminated. Metabisulfate, shrimp waste, chlorine, it's all here. It's polluted. Everything is going away. There are hardly any fish, crabs and shrimps left here. There used to be plenty, but now the chemicals in the river have changed that. So not only are the other marine organisms that once lived in the mangroves eliminated by shrimp farming, but marine life in all the rivers and other nearby water bodies die off too. And this really sucks because shrimp is amazing. Seriously, you can eat it normally, you can wrap it in bacon, you can fry it, you can put it in sushi, you can watch a hibachi chef throw it into his pocket, and you can dip it in cocktail sauce. Although I have to ask, who decided on the name cocktail sauce? Was tangy shrimp ketchup taken? Unless somebody's been spiking the cocktail sauce and not telling me about it, if the guy who named cocktail sauce is the same guy who named oyster crackers and chock full of nuts, he's got to find a different job. And it's not just shrimp. Mangroves are cleared all the time for rice paddies, rubber trees, palm oil plantations, salt farming, and many other forms of agriculture, which also consequently can lead to chemical runoff that causes algal blooms and other harm to marine ecosystems. Mangroves are also often cleared for tourist resorts and beachfront real estate, which brings garbage, sewage, noise, fumes, lights, and other disturbances to mangroves and surrounding ecosystems. And all of this is a bit too ironic because mangroves are a buffer that can protect further away marine ecosystems from chemical runoff. Mangroves are a beautiful sight that tourists want to see. And by clearing them, we're taking a region that would probably be more resilient than most to the environmental damages of these activities and chopping down the very thing that's protecting it. That's like taking off your oxygen tank to go scuba diving, or turning off your virus protection to click a pop-up that says an update to Adobe Flash Player is available. Mangrove destruction doesn't just harm the environment, it also harms the economy. By stabilizing shorelines, filtering water, and providing habitat, a single hectare of mangrove forest can provide over $12,000 of ecosystem services every year. That was biologist Dr. Richard Hodel, and he's right. Mangrove forests provide a massive benefit to the economy, with some estimates around $12,000 per hectare, and others even reaching $50,000 per hectare or higher. Given that the world houses 12 to 20 million hectares of mangroves, that puts the total economic benefit in the hundreds of billions of dollars. 
Mangroves are so valuable that after 25 years of trying to surpass them, Jeff Bezos got so burnt out he had to call it quits. So why is that? Well, mangroves' economic benefit falls into four broad categories. Provisioning services, regulating services, supporting services, and cultural services. Provisioning services include timber, fuel wood, and charcoal. Regulating services are the ones that provide protections to the nearby land, such as flood, storm, and erosion control, and prevention of saltwater intrusion. Supporting services refer to the support mangroves give commercial fish species to breed and spawn, which we later may catch and eat. And cultural services refers to things like recreation and aesthetic value. Now, the big question is, does that outweigh the value of clearing the mangrove for shrimp farming, for example? If shrimp farming brought in, say, a trillion dollars, then maybe it's worth turning every mangrove into a shrimp farm and eating po'boys and shrimp tempura rolls every day. But in reality, that's far from being the case, as economist Pavan Sukhdev explains. Shrimp farms worth $9,600 per hectare. Economic choice, very obvious. Convert the mangrove to a shrimp farm. But hang on. If you also look at the subsidies that the local government, the Thailand government, provides to the shrimp farm, well, that's $8,000. But hang on, that's not the end of the story. Because having the mangrove there means that you actually have a massive store of protection from storms and cyclones as they get more frequent, especially with climate change. And not only that, but as a result of the shrimp farm, typically in, in three to five years, you end up having uh, to just reconstruct the whole area because salination and the de deposition of chemicals has basically destroyed that land. So you need to redo the whole area. That costs money, costs about $10,000. And the value, you can work it out, of the, the mangrove protecting the area that you've, uh, that you've got along the coastline in terms of local communities, their housing, and their livelihoods, that can be measured in terms of areas which had mangroves and those which didn't, how much cyclonic damage they suffered versus the others. And that works out to something like $12,000. Now look at the trade-off choice. Exactly. Not only is a shrimp farm's economic value per hectare at best equivalent to the mangrove and probably quite a bit less, but the farm only lasts a few years before it burns out from disease and ruins all the surrounding ecosystems. And on top of all of that, the impoverished communities along mangroves subsist largely on the fish they catch, both to eat and to locally sell, which they can't do if a bunch of antibiotics, chemicals, and pathogen-ridden shrimp drive those fish to death. So while we might hope that shrimp farms create jobs in these communities, they're actually losing them. So does all of this mean we have to ban shrimp and stop visiting tropical coasts with mangroves? Of course not. Part of mangrove's benefit is the tourism revenue it brings in, and allowing more people to see them could lead to more enthusiasm for keeping them around. And as for shrimp, A, it's really just a few species of tropical shrimp, and there are plenty of others out there, and B, the only reason mangroves keep getting turned into shrimp farms is that those shrimp are native to mangroves. Not only can those shrimp survive with the mangroves intact, but that's literally their natural state of being. It's like worrying that the Detroit Lions will start winning football games after acquiring two first-round picks and young recent Super Bowl quarterback Jared Goff. Not only can the Lions still lose, but it's their natural state of being. So where do we go from here? Well, luckily, there are actually a lot of policies already working to protect mangroves. 
There's more local and state efforts like the Mangrove Trimming and Preservation Act in Florida, national efforts like Brazil's Federal Forestry Code, and global efforts like the Ramsar Convention, the World Heritage Convention, the UNESCO Man and the Biosphere Program, and the United Nations Reduced Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation Program, or RED+, which we covered in the Old Growth Forests episode. Of course, these policies can be constructed in a number of ways. They can lock off the land as reserves, they can allow individuals to own their land but regulate what they do with it, like the Florida law, or they can use market mechanisms, essentially paying countries to keep their mangroves intact, as Red Plus attempts to do. And like Matt James sending home Anna and Victoria but keeping MJ for another week, these policies certainly aren't perfect but could push things in the right direction. You can also restore mangrove forests that were previously destroyed, as this video from community nonprofit Mangrove Action Project explains. Workshops and field training days are set up to analyze the ecology and patterns of reproduction and distribution. The information gathered helps to select appropriate sites for reestablishing the original hydrology, which will facilitate the natural seeding and regeneration. This greatly increases the overall success rate and ensures restoration of an ecologically biodiverse and healthy mangrove ecosystems in a long-term and economical manner. This approach has led to numerous successful projects in the U.S., Thailand, Indonesia, India, and El Salvador, enabling the communities to regain their livelihoods with better understanding for a more sustainable future. Mangroves can be restored through community efforts like these, or probably just from setting up a stereo in the forest and playing that background music on a loop for a few days. I know if I got to listen to that calming and peaceful yet cheery and uplifting melody for a few days non-stop, I'd be pumped, rejuvenated, and ready to fight off some tropical storms. Of course, restoring mangroves is less effective and more labor-intensive, time-consuming, and expensive than just not clearing the mangroves in the first place, so the fact that we can do it doesn't mean we can freely cut down mangroves and replace them later, but we absolutely can restore the mangroves that have already been destroyed. What about for shrimp farming? Well, like I mentioned earlier, shrimp and mangroves are meant to coexist, like Thelma and Louise, or third-grade recorder concerts and Tylenol. So farming practices can evolve to embrace that. One way to do that is called integrated mangrove shrimp production. In an integrated mangrove shrimp production system, shrimp are stocked in ponds with mangroves planted either within the pond or on buns or platforms in and around the pond. While it does cost more money up front to set it up, it actually saves money in the long run, since the mangroves can manage the pond conditions and reduce disease risk, allowing the farms to last a lot longer. That upfront cost has been the main barrier for integrated mangrove shrimp production thus far, but there are ways to incentivize it. These farms can become organic certified, which as we covered in the Organic and Fair Trade Certifications episode, can boost the market value of the shrimp as long as a lot of things are executed correctly. There can also be policy measures to incentivize these systems or even require a certain ratio of shrimp to mangroves on a given farm. But while that might sound simple to execute, policies like these would likely need to meet a few criteria to be as effective as we might hope. New economic policies such as eco-certification and payments for ecosystem services can help farmers move to mangrove integrated farming systems. 
but to be successful at least three changes to how these policies are implemented are needed. First, farmers require transparent, equitable and timely delivery of economic incentives if they're going to invest in certified production. Second, contradictory regulations that stop farmers planting mangroves need to be amended. Third, policy and certification need to move beyond the farm level and in doing so enable landscape scale governance of mangroves and shrimp aquaculture. If these conditions are met, farmers may be more willing and able to move towards mangrove integrated production systems and that gives hope for consumers and producers alike. Ultimately, before any of this can take off, a really important piece is awareness. Even if strong policies are enacted, mangroves are so big and so full of hiding spaces for Florida man that protecting them hinges on buy-in from the local community. In many regions, those communities are struggling with education and poverty, and it would take a lot more time than I have today to find a foolproof answer for how to fully preserve mangroves and simultaneously allow locals to use their natural resources to meet their most basic needs, as anyone deserves to be able to do. In addition, awareness certainly helps here in the United States. We do have mangroves here, but even in the Northeast where I am, Raising awareness about mangroves allows us to A, understand one of the biggest protections against climate change, B, appreciate the boost mangroves give to the economy, and C, prevent Minecraft players from going on YouTube with egregious hot takes like this. Last but not least, new types of trees, which will more than likely mean maybe a new type of wood, the mangrove tree. So that's the, the announcement and the reveal for the swamp biome and unless mountains can blow me out of the water tomorrow, I think this might just get my vote. The Not so much for the frogs, not so much for the mangrove trees, but the boat chests are so beneficial as a Minecraft player. Really? Minecraft introduces mangroves to the game and you're telling me your favorite part of the biome is boat chests? I've never played Minecraft and don't know what a boat chest is, but if people are playing this game and not absolutely reveling at the sight of mangroves, we clearly have an awareness problem. Now, this issue might seem a little scary. It feels like we're losing forests left and right, and with mangroves storing as much carbon as they do, the thought of that carbon being released is more terrifying than someone responding to your text with okay period. But given the unequivocal economic and environmental benefit of mangroves, coupled with the growing list of policies protecting them, I'm optimistic that we can preserve the ones we have left and restore some of the ones that we've lost. Because if we do, we'll fend off climate change, protect marine life, save money, improve the livelihoods of communities all over the world, and never run the risk of people in 2100 reading a news story that mangroves have functionally disappeared and cluelessly asking, Where are the mangoes? Have you ever made it to February and thought, man, I wish winter would just magically stop? If so, groundhogs are for you. If you're not happy with the winter weather, all you have to do is block the sun so the groundhog doesn't see his shadow and voila, hello spring. And if the weather doesn't magically change, it doesn't matter because you'll completely forget about the ritual you did the very next day. Groundhogs, the only reason you hear impressionable kids talk about chucking wood. 
Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Margaret Obor, a lecturer at Southeastern Kenya University and the Education and Science Officer of the Society for Conservation Biology Africa chapter. Dr. Obor, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me to the show. So first, I just wanted to ask, why are mangroves so effective at sequestering carbon for such long periods of time? Because that was really striking to me. Is there a reason that they evolved this way? So they are very important in uh, sequestering carbon. One, because of the soil in which they grow in, you know, they grow in swamps. So within these swamps, there's a muddy, sticky soil like peat that uh, takes in the carbon. And uh, also through their, with the, through their leaves, through the process of photosynthesis, you know, when photosynthesis takes place, there's carbon being produced in the form of carbon dioxide. So that makes them very efficient, just like other forests to be able to sequester carbon. But of course, because they are carbon-rich system, because of their formation, the zones within which they, they grow in the muddy areas, this also increases their above and below ground carbon. I know a lot of your work has been around involving the community in mangrove management and preservation. So I was interested if you could tell us a little bit about that. What kind of work have community members been able to contribute to? I started working or got interest in working with mangroves just right after my undergraduate studies. Uh, when we first visited uh, mangrove forests as part of our field course at uh, what we call fourth year bachelor studies level. So I got mesmerized by these trees that were growing in, in, in mud and in water. I was also attracted to how the community members were trying to plant them uh, in the destroyed areas we visited a place known as Gazi Bay in the south coast of Kenya. And in Gazi Bay, there is one of the areas that is now renowned for community projects. Uh, there's a, they have a project known as Mkoko Pamoja, where community members are engaging in uh, planting or restoring degraded mangrove areas. And through this, they're able to carry out carbon trading. Uh, and the resources earned from this is used to uh, take people or children from these families who are engaging in reforestation to school. So they're having water systems being built up because of this trading with carbon from the mangroves. So the communities are trying to engage so much in a restoration of uh, mangroves. They've built uh, what are known as boardwalks. You know, being, being muddy systems is so difficult to walk within the mangrove swamps. So one of the ecotourism approaches was to build boardwalks to enable tourists to walk through to see the zonation. You know, mangroves grow in zones. We have uh, one species, uh, maybe landward, another one in the middle. So they grow in, so in zonation. So to be able to see this, you cannot walk in the mud. It takes a long time. So the communities have built these boardwalks, of course, with help from donor funding. And uh, the Kenya Marine and Fisheries Research Institute in, uh, along the Kenyan coast. So with this, they're earning a living. But it's, it's, it's so far in uh, one very specific area, that is Gazi. So it will be very important if uh, this kind of projects will be replicated to other areas. Like where I carried out my, uh, I'll say my PhD research work in Mida Creek. In Mida Creek, uh, they also have a boardwalk that was built, I think, by Arocha, Arocha, Kenya. And it's also meant for tourists to walk through and there's some money collected. So this money that is collected from this is also used again to help community members uh, improve their livelihoods. They've also built, uh, they call it a floating restaurant. It's not really floating per se, but it's built on top of uh, mangrove swamps. So 
it's also attracting tourists. They are holding board meetings. So you, you pay them. And this is a, a return to the community members to help them earn some income. Yeah, so they, they, are, they are trying. They are being empowered to plant mangroves. And uh, they are getting trainings. Like when I worked with them, we tried to value the ecosystem services that are provided by the mangroves. Yeah, that is basically trying to put uh, monetary value onto the services that mangroves uh, give us. And it was a really exciting exercise for them to learn that mangroves are actually very important and if conserved, they can get uh, good uh, sources of, of living. I'd love to ask about that uh, process, finding the ecosystem value. How did you go about that and what were the results like? I was using what is uh, scientifically known as a choice experiment approach, whereby you design what, has, what are known as choice cards. So once you design the, the choice cards, uh, whereby you, you ask, you, you have different scenarios and you have a scenario on when business as usual, where what is happening currently. Of course, currently the picture is that mangroves are degrading and when they continue degrading, then it means uh, the biodiversity will also go down. And uh, when biodiversity goes down, then it means what you are earning from the system also goes down. Then we paint a picture of uh, using policies that what if we increase by 10% cover of mangroves? What will you earn? Will the biodiversity go up? So then you present this card to the community members and they make a, a selection. So the selections are normally in monetary terms, but in, our, in my case, being that the people I was working with, the community members, they don't have a direct source of income that they can say, this is the money that I can set aside to conserve mangroves to ensure that I continue, for example, receiving the service of uh, uh, flood control. So they will give uh, uh, money, but in terms of voluntary work to conserve mangroves, to plant mangroves. So this is what then I, I go back as a researcher and uh, calculate in form of money, because I calculate that uh, using a formula of uh, what will be a daily wage for somebody working in that particular area. So whatever hours the person gives me as their voluntary time for conservation, that's the hours I use to calculate uh, the amount of money that the person will be willing to give. So it's an econometric model. And uh, we were using a deliberative approach whereby we were asking them, why, why are you saying you'll give, like, for example, five hours of, of, of your time to conserve mangroves? And the person will say, okay, they've learned that mangroves are important, okay? And uh, they will be interested in ensuring that they, they continue receiving those particular benefits. You're talking about a lot of people in the communities that are concerned about uh, the issue of uh, mangrove destruction. Does it seem like this is widespread knowledge in these communities or is there still work to do to educate people and generate enthusiasm? And if so, how do you get people interested? It's not easy to get people uh, really much uh, involved because uh, when I was working there, people, the community members are encouraged to form uh, community-based groups so that uh, they can join CFAs, uh, which are known as community forest associations. So through this, they're able to engage actively in the conservation of, of, uh, of mangroves. It's not that they're very much knowledgeable about uh, uh, conservation, but it's because they have interacted with the system. You know, these are communities that live along the coast. They are born there. They have interacted with the system. They've seen it change. 
because they, they also cut the poles for building their houses. So sometimes you go into the forest and you find you don't get the right size pole. So you realize that this system is changing and there's need to conserve it. Because there's some of them are rebel about that because this is where they get their sources of living. So when we come with bans and say that you're no longer required to go and cut, you know, like uh, in Kenya, we have the, you're required to have a license to be able to access the mangrove forest to cut. Some people cannot afford to get this license, so they'll go in illegally because they need the firewood. They, sometimes they don't have money to buy this state of the heart, heart materials for construction. So they believe that this system, they've lived with it, the forest, they can get their resources from there. So it's very important that we come up with measures that allow them to live interactively with the forest while they cut, they plant. But you know, it takes a long time for a mangrove tree to grow to a level where you can cut it. So there are, people have been working with them, um, like myself, to try and encourage them to embrace uh, the conservation and the planting of degraded mangrove areas. And there, since there are many projects in some of the areas, there are projects that are always going on with different organizations. So these are sort of empowered uh, the community members to sort of understand the need for conservation of mangroves in those areas. But they still need, they still need for more to be done. Because you know, these are poor people who rely on uh, natural resources for their livelihood. So uh, eliminating them from interacting with the, with the natural systems entirely will call for a huge shift, like in having other alternative sources of livelihoods. Like if you tell me don't cut a mangrove pole for construction, what is the option you're giving me to use for constructing my house? So it's that kind of a relationship. <laughs> That's a really, really important point, which leads right into my next question, which is how do we make sure that we can still protect people's livelihoods while protecting these forests? Are the two compatible? That's a good question. There are other alternatives that the community will prefer to have to ensure that they, are, they continue getting their livelihoods. Like they plant kashwarina, it's a species of a tree. And this they, too, they use too for construction of uh, their homes. But they claim that uh, getting seedlings for this particular tree, I'm giving an example, is expensive for them because they need to maintain the nurseries. Once they have the nurseries, then they plant them and they wait for them to grow. While they think that uh, mangroves, since they're naturally growing, they're easy target, you know? So if they will be empowered to, for example, get uh, seedlings for kashwarina uh, in, in their homes, so that will provide an alternative for firewood, uh, for firewood and also for building materials so that the community then are able to at least give uh, mangroves some breathing space to grow. Uh, or to regenerate. The other thing is that uh, they, they are engaging in honey harvesting activities, beekeeping. So if they would be empowered to be able to have more hives, uh, they will get into groups and cooperatives where they can get this honey. They are trained on how they can have honey of good quality. Uh, some of them install hives in the mangroves. Okay. So they, they then will sell this honey, get money, and this money they can use to buy maybe timber from other sources, not necessarily having to cut mangroves. But also, it's a cultural belief that uh, some parts of their homes, they have to build using mangroves. So it's, a really, it's a, between culture and moving to modernization. It's a difficult situation, but to reduce the pressure, then there's need to enhance uh, alternative livelihoods to the community for their survival. 
You've talked about how forest ecosystems are increasingly being managed from a bottom-up community approach rather than a top-down government approach. And I was wondering, why is this shift happening and uh, are we seeing certain benefits or drawbacks with it? <laughs> yeah, uh, because for a long time we had a top-bottom approach whereby we had uh, uh, the government making most of the decisions in terms of uh, general natural resource management within the country. But then um, in 2005, we had a forest act that was uh, implemented and this encouraged a lot that we have community members involved in conservation because these are the people who directly benefit. You know, uh, government officials sometimes, they are in, in cities, they are not in the local areas where these people are living. So if you proceed to carry out conservation activities without involving the local community and forgetting that they have the local knowledge, they have been interacting with these systems, some of them since they were born, maybe for almost over 50, 60 years, then it's, it's abnormal because then how, how will you come, like for example in Kenya, our capital is Nairobi, I want to come from Nairobi and go and manage a forest at the coast while there are coastal communities living there. <laughs> Like, uh, say, if you're in the U.S., you're coming from Washington to California to manage their systems for them, you know. It's not possible. You have to work with them to ensure that you empower them to understand that what is it that we are really conserving and why do we need to conserve it. The government is not entirely hands-off from the conservation process because they are work we have re relevant ministries uh, that are involved and institutions. Like I mentioned, we have Kenya Forest Service. These are, these are arm of the government. But then... They encourage the communities to form the community forest associations. So this is also like an arm that is now like an eye to the government on what communities are doing. So it's not really that the government is really hands-off, but they're trying to get away from that top-bottom kind of rule to a way where we, we co-manage. So I can say co-management where they work with the community uh, groups and the government institutions to ensure that the systems are managed by the two parties, the community and the government. Having worked extensively with these communities in Kenya on mangrove forests, I'm curious what advice would you give other communities in the rest of the world who have mangroves and what advice would you give their governments who are looking to support these communities? Yeah, oh, thank you for that. Um, I will encourage them to come and plant a mangrove to conserve the, the entire coastline because when, when we destroy our coastline, we are all exposed because the oceans are linked, you know. So when we destroy maybe oceans, the forests in Kenya, the world is affected because the mangroves, as you mentioned, they sequester carbon. So if we destroy those in Kenya, it means the global warming will, will increase, okay, due to the emissions going up. So this is a global issue, it's not only a Kenyan issue. So I encourage those governments to work with the local communities and work with the governments to encourage the people to actually come and uh, plant uh, mangroves. And not only plant mangroves, but also empower the communities to get other alternative sources of livelihood. And also the current uh, uh, method of trading in carbon to reduce our carbon footprints. Some people invest back their carbon credit, uh, credits from their travels, and they put that back into... Uh, conservation. So it's very important for all of us to work together as one, uh, one people and ensure that we uh, conserve our destroyed uh, ecosystems because 
the effect of a degraded natural system is not only to the people in that particular area, but it's a global issue that uh, everyone who is able and can support is encouraged to do so. Dr. Owar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me, Ethan. This wraps up episode 34 of The Sweaty Penguin. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're a fan of the show, please tell a friend about it or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so more people find the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown and Olivia Amate, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Frank Hernandez, and our music was composed by Brett Salka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.